the Jewish views on the verdict over Ken Livingston. We speak to the chair of the Jewish labor movement, Jeremy Newmark, for his reaction. Survivor, portraits of Holocaust survivors. Photographer Harry Borden tells us about his new book. And Rabbi Yossi Simon from Sivos Hashem UK tells us why his organization are teaching the next generation to make matzah. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news from the past week, I'm Jason Rosen. Ken Livingston has been suspended from the Labour Party for another year and has avoided being permanently kicked out. The hearing by the National Constitutional Committee, the party's highest disciplinary body, followed on from his comments about Zionism and Hitler. The verdict has been criticised by various key Labour figures, including Shadow Attorney General Shami Chakrabarti and Deputy Leader Tom Watson. Chief Rabbi Afiram Mervis said this was a chance for the Labour Party to show that it would not tolerate willful and unapologetic baiting of the Jewish community. Mr Livingston has vowed to campaign against his extended suspension, insisting he had told the historical truth and would now consult lawyers on his legal position. In other news, a woman who was mugged in broad daylight has paid tribute to those who came to her rescue. Leslie Diamond was attacked last Friday as she walked along Hale Lane in Edgware, where the perpetrators punched her in the chest and ran off with two of her rings. Mrs Diamond suffered from cuts and bruises and was left traumatised by the experience. Two of the men were later caught with thanks to bystanders. A grandmother from Kenton who called on the Jewish community to help her find an urgent stem cell donor had a transplant this week from her daughter. Sippy Howard, who was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukaemia on her birthday in December, is hoping the procedure will work after no match was found from the family's donor registration drive. Three people were stabbed in the old city of Jerusalem by a Palestinian teenager, the second of its kind in the same week. The attacker was identified by the Palestinian Ministry of Health as Ahmed Zahir Fatih Ghazal from the Northern West Bank. The incident happened in the Muslim quarter on Saturday afternoon. Ghazal was later shot and killed by authorities after he stabbed his third victim, a border police officer. And finally, the owner of a kosher pizzeria in New York has successfully sued the owner of a rival kosher pizzeria by invoking an ancient Talmudic law. Daniel Branover of Basil Pizza and Wine Bar took exception to Shemi Harrell opening his new restaurant, Calabria, just across the street. Following a ruling by the local Beth Din, Mr Harrell was ordered to change his offerings and he now serves New York-style pizza in rectangular slices, which again Mr Branover has taken exception to, saying they should be wedge-shaped slices instead. Rabbinical judges could be asked to rule on this too. That's the news. And now for a slice of sporting news, here's Andrew Sherwood. Thank you, Jason. Mine will be a margarita. Redbridge B player manager Sam Rank was lost for words after he saw his side crowned MSFL Division 1 champions on Sunday, lifting the title after beating their nearest challengers, London Lions B 2-1. Rank said, words cannot describe the feelings I felt when that final whistle went. The head of the Palestinian Football Association has renewed his calls for Israel to be expelled from international football. Speaking after FIFA's Israel-Palestine Monitoring Committee recommended maintaining the status of six Israeli football clubs, 
Jibril Rajoub, who says they're based in settlements and are a violation of international law, including UN resolutions, has said he appreciates and respects what FIFA do, but that he'll be calling for the sanction and suspension of Israel from FIFA. And finally, Alexei Bychenko enjoyed an historic weekend, not only in recording the best ever finish for an Israeli man at the Figure Skating World Championships, but also by becoming the first Israeli to qualify for next year's Winter Olympics in South Korea. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Farrer and news editor Justin Cohen. And I'm sure it's going to come as a massive shock to know that there really is only one person who features on the front page this week. We saw him on the front page last week. We see him on again this week. You'd be forgiven for thinking it's the same edition, but my goodness me, what a difference a week makes. Richard, I'm, of course, talking about... Mr. Ken Livingston. Yes, three little letters, spelling one big word for us this week, Ken. I know tradition dictates that usually I'm the one that kicks off the newspaper review and talks about the front page, but with Justin Cohen here in the room, the man who's quite simply, I think, a uh, authority on this subject, I think it's only fair that I throw it over to him to set the scene. I agree, actually, because Justin, I can't even begin to describe the week you've had, so maybe you can instead. It's been pretty hectic. I, I was outside Church House at the end of last week uh, already on Friday expecting a result in the hours before Shabbat. We were told, I think about an hour and a half before Shabbat came in, that that wasn't going to happen. So the media pack, myself included, returned for the result. We expected shortly after 3.30 on Tuesday. We were actually ended up waiting until about 8 o'clock for the result. And the result was Ken Livingston is guilty on three counts of bringing the part into disrepute, but he isn't going to be expelled. Only a suspension, a further one-year suspension on top of the year he's already spent outside the framework of the party. And as you can imagine, as we expected, that sent pandemonium, I would say, through the community. People went apoplectic at this result. It's just we've heard months and months of people at the highest levels of the Labour Party, from Jeremy Corbyn to John McDonnell and others, saying that there'd be zero tolerance towards anti-Semitism within the party. And yet, when the opportunity came to actually you know, exact proper punishment here and actually to bring that to the fore they could only suspend. It was it was a decision, it has to be said, of a three-person panel of the National Constitutional Committee, but they were acting on behalf of the Labour Party, and the Labour Party here has failed once again, as they did a couple of weeks ago with the Oxford Union Labour Club, to show that zero tolerance means zero tolerance. Yeah, and I also think the silence of some of the key members of the Shadow Cabinet, I think the, the absence of any comment, actually speaks volumes. I mean, th- this is a party that has prided itself on its Chakrabarti report and being zero tolerant anti-Semitism and setting a gold standard of, uh, for racism, etc. And this is the nub of it. They have failed. The whole thing has been transparent nonsense from start to finish. This was the only opportunity they had, I think, to draw a line in the sand, set the clock back to zero and perhaps draw the Jewish community in. And as we wrote in the leader this week, the relationship now is beyond repair. 
there's going to be more investigations, subsequent investigations to the reactions that have come as a result of the further suspension, the things that Ken's been saying, the things that Ken said on the tube to Justin a few days ago after the verdict, again, I think are going to call into question what he's said and could potentially bring the party into disrepute. Again, we've got this ongoing story that's never going away. The party has failed. And as our leader has said, the party is over, at least for the Jewish community. Well, it's interesting you say it like that, because, of course, I will be speaking later on in this very program to Jeremy Newmark, the chair of the Jewish labor movement, to find out exactly what his reaction is to that point. But as you've already alluded to, Rich, Justin, you managed to bump into a certain Mr. Livingston on his way back from the hearing on the train. And I believe we can now hear some of that, of what happened with your interview with him. I grew up in that post-war Britain where the, two of the main terms of abuse were jumped up Bill Hitler. And when people said, I'm only doing my job, people responded, hey, isn't that what concentration camp guards saying? Those were common um, bits of you know, slang and abuse back in the 1950s and 60s. One last chance to apologise for the hurt I'm telling you has been caused. Not anyone was upset. I'm really sorry about they that. Are. All I say, read your history. Can you, can you do it without the end? No. It's a very interesting choice of the word if there, isn't there? Because it was almost, he. well, he did. He refused to remove the word if he caused offence because you, in so many words, told him he did cause offence. It was very much a politician's apology. It's the kind of apology we've had on many occasions in the past when, when a politician, frankly, isn't fully sorry or doesn't fully acknowledge the hurt and the pain that they've caused. Uh, I put it to him that, that he, he might want to repeat that sentence without the word if, and he did pointedly refuse that. I think it's important to acknowledge here also that Jeremy Corbyn's intervention was pretty significant. I was speaking to people minutes before he intervened and criticised Ken Livingston in very clear terms. And they were saying that even if Corbyn says something here, it's not going to be very sufficient. It's not going to be, it's going to be a fudge. When in fact, to criticise in the way he did a very long-term ally and make clear that he supports a new investigation into Ken Livingston and the offence he's caused was a pretty significant moment. And I, I think, you know, told a story. Certainly did. And just to make one thing absolutely clear for anyone who might be in any doubt, Rich, perhaps you would like to clarify, does the Jewish News support Ken Livingston? <laughs> Isn't this extraordinary? I mean, it just shows how surreal it is. Not only did the news editor of the Jewish News spend an extraordinary 12 minutes on video interviewing Ken as he headed back to Kilburn to get his fish and chips with his wife after being saved from being expelled from the party and getting his just desserts. The next day, he starts traipsing around in the way he absolutely loves to do around all these media outlets. I'm surprised he's not on the Jewish Views this week. I'm sure he was knocking on your door too. ITN. He's welcome anytime. Uh, yeah, of course. I, I'd love to love to hear from ITN, Newsnight, LBC, BBC News, claiming that the Jewish News supports him and the Jewish News has endorsed him and his position and says that he should not be expelled. Now, he has been in the media long enough to know the difference between a blog and editorial comment from a newspaper. Last week's front page was after Brexit, time for Kenzit. It's absolutely time to kicking him out of the party. It was absolutely categorical, unambiguous that this man has to go. But Ken Livingston literally printed out into a little A4 piece of paper a blog from somebody who contributes, many, many hundreds of people contribute on our blogging platform. And it clearly says at the top, these are individual views, not the views of the newspaper. A gentleman called David Woolchover had chosen in his 
wisdom or otherwise to say that Ken should not be kicked out. But Ken used that, manipulated that to suggest the Jewish news was supporting him. Yeah, it's undermining our position amongst some readers who are concerned now. And we'll see how we feel about that. Well, unbelievably enough, there is other news in the paper this week. So let's take a look at the 18 under 18, shall we, Rich? Yeah, I mean, regular followers over the years will have known that we do lots of lists. We like to identify where the community... We love a list. Oh, gosh, do we love a list. Listicles, listicles everywhere. We like to identify where the community is going. Who shapes the community? What's the future of the community? And there's no greater indication, I think, than looking at the young. So we've done 40 under 40, 30 under 30, 25 under 25. How young can we go? Well, we've gone 18 under 18. And these are obviously people at school and you know people that are, don't even know what they want to do for a career, some of them. So we assembled a panel of the great and good across the community. We got hundreds of nominations from readers. And this week, we haven't listed them 1 to 18. We thought that would be unfair. We've just named 18. And now we've got some extraordinary guys and girls that are doing amazing things in, in youth development, in education, in religious work, in philanthropy. Obviously, I'm not familiar with a lot of them and wasn't before I I learned about all their incredible endeavours. But do have a look at the paper this week. They've all got profiles and they all are absolutely worthy of praise. Well, we look forward to reading them, but that unfortunately is all we've got time for for a look at the paper for this week. Of course, though, we do look forward to the time, certainly from a point of view of making it easy on yourself when you eventually reach one under one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget you <laughs> Don't forget you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, as you've been hearing, Ken Livingstone has avoided being permanently kicked out of the Labour Party over his comments on Zionism and Hitler. The former mayor of London learned his fate at a hearing this week by the National Constitutional Committee of the Labour Party. There has been mixed reaction, to say the least, at the results. And to discuss the Jewish angle, I've been speaking to Jeremy Newmark, the chair of the Jewish Labour Movement. I started by asking Jeremy, how does he react to the outcome of the hearing? The outcome in terms of Ken being found guilty on all three charges of bringing the party into disrepute was the only possible outcome. By Ken's own admission, his words, his comments, his insensitivity, the hurt, the pain and the anguish that he caused to members of the Jewish community, Holocaust survivors and the damage he did to Labour's electoral prospects and its support in the Jewish community was abundantly clear for all to see. I testified before the committee to evidence that and pretty much every mainstream leader of the Jewish community made that clear in the public domain. However, the sentencing of two years suspension, one year of which was already deemed to have been served, and that's only suspension from holding office and representation in the Labour Party, it's not suspension of his membership, was completely dissonance and out of accord and out of sync and misaligned with the scale of Ken's offence. So what would you have liked to have seen the sentence be if it were, obviously it's not up to you, but if it was up to you, what do you think would have been the correct sentence? Well, I called for Ken to be expelled from the Labour Party. This needed to be the end of Ken's political career and the end of Ken's future activism within the party. When we consider that people get expelled from the Labour Party for offences like handing out leaflets for a Green Party candidate in an obscure parish council election. People get expelled from the Labour Party for campaigning against 
candidates standing on a Labour ticket, one would think that revising the history of the Holocaust at an altogether different scale should merit at least the same kind of punishment as rogue campaign activity. But then again, having said that, what you've just mentioned in terms of those who have been expelled for other activities is not necessarily a person who has quite a loyal Labour following and also furthermore was former mayor of London, so obviously has achieved political greatness in his career. Does that play something in the way that he was treated? Well, Ken's political track record, and I don't want to take the credit away from him for that, is firstly what makes this episode particularly sad. It's tragic that ourselves as the Jewish Labour movement, the oldest existing affiliate of the Labour Party, should have to call for the expulsion of somebody with Ken's track record. But secondly, I think it's fair to say, I think that most of our current party leadership would agree with it. If you held or have held positions of huge responsibility in political life, and particularly positions of responsibility in the Labour Party, a party that was founded in opposition to bigotry, racism and anti-Semitism, the responsibility upon you to reflect those core fundamental values of our party is increased manyfold over ordinary members of the party. So, you know, contravening those values in the way that Ken did would have been bad enough from an ordinary party member. But from somebody of his profile, with his track record, that's been around as long as he has, should not only frankly ought to know better, but need to understand that the scale of the impact of their remarks is much more damaging than had it been from somebody without that kind of a track record. I know that at the time of when the Najjar incident occurred, a little while back, that you had taken the time in your position in Jewish labour movement to speak to Naz Shah and trying to help her see the, shall we say, errors of her ways. Have you had the chance to do the same with Ken Livingston? Have you spoken to him at all? Have you been in contact with him? Look, the huge contrast between Ken Livingston and Naz Shah is that we were able to work with Naz Shah and have a dialogue with her and work to train and educate her and get her to the point where she's now become actually a beacon for tolerance and understanding is because she immediately demonstrated contrition. She showed in a very public way that she recognised the scale of the hurt, the pain and offence that she had caused. Look, I've known Ken for over 25 years. He has a blind spot on these issues. There was simply no way that Ken was going to give an inch. You know, even outside his own expulsion hearing, both before and after the result, he doubled, tripled and quadrupled down, continuing to sprinkle around the language of Hitler and the Holocaust as if it was some kind of worthless political confetti. So, you know, they're two very different cases, two very different approaches. And unfortunately, it hasn't been possible to take the same approach with Ken that we did so successfully with Naz Shah. And that's tragic. Yeah, I mean, I should highlight, obviously, that when I refer to Naz, I appreciate that it is obviously a different case. But my comparison was merely, have you had the chance to speak to him? That was all I was. Well, they, 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 they are different cases. But let's remember, one of the charges against Ken related very directly to Naz Shah, in that even after Naz recognised, admitted and apologised for the anti-Semitic nature of her social media postings, Ken continued to defend them. Ken continued to say 
to deny the anti-Semitic content and say that Naz had been bullied and that Naz had been pushed into contrition so that there is an interrelationship between those cases. And I think it, it is a very apt comparison. But look, they're two very different people, two very different personalities. They took two very different approaches. But but you're right. I think as a Jewish community, you know, we're not dogmatic. We're actually very pragmatic. And had Ken given us the tiniest glimpse of something that we could grab onto to have a process of uh, of healing and a process of contrition and a process of, of bringing this back from the prospect of formal hearings and, and tribunals and constitutional committees, we would certainly have grabbed at that. What are the ramifications going to be to the Labour Party, do you think, following this, as far as the Jewish vote's concerned? Well, you know, I think the, conti- the, the, the story continues to rumble on. Support for the Labour Party and the Jewish community has dipped to an all-time low of somewhere between 7 and 8%, which is uh, deeply unfortunate. I was talking to one of our local election candidates for county council elections in a heavily Jewishly populated area, and the impact on his campaign has, has already been devastating. Nevertheless, I think this is, is continuing to rumble on. We had a series of announcements. First of all, Shadow Attorney General Shami Chakrabarti making it clear that, that she felt Ken's remarks since the hearing and lack of contrition since the verdict potentially opened the possibility of a new investigation and a new set of complaints. Jeremy Corbyn then followed up with a very robust statement a couple of hours later, making it clear that he now expects Labour's national executive to review the remarks that Ken made since the verdict, look at his lack of contrition and to consider bringing forward a new complaint. This is far from the end of the story. Is there any way back for Labour as far as the Jewish vote's concerned? I think there is over time. And I think the reason for that is, as I said earlier, ultimately, the reason that that for so many years there was a a natural alliance, if you like, and a natural alignment between Labour and the Jewish community is because at its very core, Labour values are, are Jewish values about equality of opportunity, caring for the needy, helping the oppressed. These are all things that, that, that strike a huge note of resonance with, with, with Jewish values, particularly at this time of year as we approach Pesach, the narratives of, of freedom and, and liberation. So when you strip this away from the uh, rough and tumble of day-to-day party politics and start to look at the very core values of the Labour Party, I think that you know, whilst we may be going through a difficult and turbulent period, I, I, I'm very confident that normal service will be resumed. And I look at our own membership at the Jewish labor movement, and ironically, you know, our our membership's been growing on a daily basis. And actually over the past week, since this set of issues around Ken Livingstone, we've had a a huge spike in membership with, with over 200 people joining us in the past week. There's a great number, particularly of young Jewish labor activists, young Jewish labor counselors, candidates, social justice activists, up and down the country who want nothing more than to sort of carve out a space for them to pursue those values I talked about a few moments ago within the context of the Labour Party. So the groundswell is there, the people are there, the politics just needs to be made right. Jeremy Newmark, the chair of the Jewish Labour Movement, giving us his reactions to the verdict on Ken Livingstone's hearing following remarks that he made about Hitler and Zionism.
You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by journalist and author Jeremy Havadi and chair of the Middle East Strategy Committee for the Bay Area in America, Dr. Lenny Crystal. They'll be asking the question, what do Labour do now to win back support from Jewish voters? Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Rabbi Yossi Simon from Sivos Hashem UK about why his organisation is teaching the next generation to make matzah. But first, photographer Harry Borden can usually be found snapping the likes of Elton John, Paul McCartney and even the late Margaret Thatcher. But his new book focuses on a very different subject. He has spent the past few years capturing Holocaust survivors, 200 of them in all, a project that has seen him travel all over the world. Arts editor Kate Fulton has been speaking to Harry to find out more about Survivor, a portrait of the survivors of the Holocaust. Kate started by asking Harry to tell us a bit about his own personal background. I was born in New York. My father's Jewish, although he would probably say he was an atheist, although as far as Politically, he's definitely Jewish, but as far as any kind of spiritual sustenance or kind of traditions, he's not really that interested. I kind of was born in New York. My parents came to London. My dad worked in advertising. He was one of, initially joined the American Marines when he was a young man, then worked in advertising in New York, and then like one of the madmen, and then <laughs> came to London. My brother and sister were born. And then he, I think, probably had a midlife crisis and decided that his life, he wanted control. He wanted to sort of escape the sort of capricious nature of the advertising industry and bought a pig farm in Devon. So the majority of my childhood I sort of spent in Devon from probably about the age of six. Right. And was it was it around Devon that you realised that you were, well, that you should have had a good eye, that you were good at taking photographs? I think I had a very good friend. I subsequently sort of ended up going out with his sister and um, he's probably my best friend. You know, I sort of meet him once a week and we play snooker together. And he bought a camera when we were about sort of 12 because he was into it. And I sort of saw the pictures that he took and I just thought how wonderful. They were quite cliche looking back, sort of backlit leaves on trees and, and sort of landscapes and things like that. And I went to Exeter and bought a second-hand Minolta from the London Camera Exchange, as it was called then. And, and you know, we kind of had this friendship, which, you know, at the centre of it was our photography. And we ended up going to college together. He sort of fell away. And, you know, he's a builder now. And I, I just carried on. Yeah. Then, you know, subsequently was influenced by other photographers at the college and then and then the great photographers you know that that influenced most photographers here working today you know people like Richard Avedon or Irving Penn or Diane Arbus I think there was a point at which we were making straw harvesting the straw in the in the field and my parents had bought me this lens a sort of a zoom lens a Vivitar zoom lens and I sort of I do remember going down there and so and sort of instinctively feeling a need to frame things in a certain way. And I think that's all that being a photographer is, is having an opinion about how you organise things within the graphics of a frame. So it's not so much about going to photography school and being being sort of formally schooled, or is that important too? No, especially now. I think it was back then. I think you had to kind of adhere to a certain level of technical ability. Back then it was sort of quite a lot, quite male. It was a sort of a slavish kind of 
obsession with technique and the more obscure the better but now because of sort of the technology of photography because everyone's taking pictures there's been a kind of paradigm shift everyone's a photographer and so because of the technology and the advances that have been made photography can be free to be about more interesting things than just technique my daughter's a very good photographer but I was pleased when she instead of doing photography did a psychology degree <laughs> because I think we don't know what the technique will be and you know, it's changing sort of almost almost on a daily basis so it's more about having ideas and sort of what you have to say in the case of portraits creating intimacy so technique was important when I started but it's probably less so now what was it then that you thought made you different why did you decide to pursue a career in photography I can't say that my parents were kind of super supportive. The same goes for my brother and sister, who are both artists. I think it's just something innate in some children. And actually, my son is a bit like that. Even though your experiences sort of are to the contrary, you kind of just have this rather deluded belief in yourself. So I kind of have always sort of believed that I could do whatever I wanted. I want to talk about your book, this fabulous book about survivors. And you photographed various Holocaust survivors. What inspired you to photograph them? I mean, surely they've been photographed and spoken to lots before. What made you think you could make a book featuring them? Well, I got to the point in my life, as often you do, where you, you know, where I was sort of 40 and I'd been relatively successful at what I did. It was kind of very seductive, you know, photographing famous people, meeting David Beckham or Baroness Thatcher or, or whoever. I still do my portraits in parallel with doing personal projects and I just thought I want to do personal projects and things that I do get more intrinsic pleasure that I'm interested in so on a personal level it was an exploration of my identity finding out a bit more about my dad you know my dad sort of just drew a veil over any any of his Jewishness apart from you know his steadfast belief in Israel and, and so on and my grandmother came to stay Lillian who was originally from Romania and talked to her. She talked to my sister about Jewishness. And so on a personal level, the project was kind of an exploration of my identity. Mm -hmm. Went to Israel and I had, I didn't know what a Shabbat dinner was before. And I had my first Shabbat dinner. And then on a more general level, I wanted to do something that was meaningful and had the potential to be sort of profound. I just felt that the Holocaust had often been approached in a way that put simple kind of cliches onto people so they were either portrayed as kind of victims of this kind of uniquely horrific event or kind of heroic and I just think like most things it's much more complicated than that and so I want to sort of portray these people just as people and frankly is also a rebuttal to holocaust denial. Did you feel you had to get to know the people first before you photograph them? Initially I gave a talk at the London Jewish Cultural Centre about my portraits and, and I think there were some survivors that came along to the talk and then at the end of the talk I sort of said look would anyone be interested in being part of a, a project that I'm that I want to start you know photographing holocaust survivors so the people that I got you know were all quite keen to be involved because I didn't want to waste anyone's time and I didn't want to get people to participate who weren't really into the idea of being photographed by me and then after I had a few people who'd sat for me and we'd collaborated and made an um, interesting picture and I got them to write a sentence in their own handwriting. It started to take shape and uh, I was able to sort of upload a few pictures to the website and then I 
when I went to Israel, I did an interview with the Jerusalem Post. And then when I was in Australia, I did an interview with the Australian Jewish News and the same in New York. I had people emailing me who wanted to be involved and were intrigued. Well, the book is very, for those of those people who are listening and may not have seen the book, it's beautifully photographed, very meaningful. You you really do feel, as people say, that you can see inside the people's lives. It's very powerful. The book is on sale now, isn't it? Yes, that's right. In the UK, it came out on Holocaust Memorial Day on the 27th of January, and then it's being launched in Australia next month, end of April, and the same in, in Israel and the States. I've had an amazing, wonderful sort of response But the most important thing is all the people, I I made sure the publisher, the deal that I sort of struck with them was that it involved everybody who was in the book getting a copy of the book. And they're the people that matter and and they, you know, that everyone's been really pleased to be involved. Photographer Harry Borden talking to arts editor Kate Fulton there about his new book, Survivor, A Portrait of the Survivors of the Holocaust. For more information, you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze. Remember, we live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime. That address is coming up, but it means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds, and we'll try and read out some of those comments as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. And of course, all those details can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Now, in case you hadn't noticed, Pesach is just around the corner. And what would a Jewish festival be without food? Yom Kippur. Of course, when it comes to Passover, the first culinary delight one thinks of is matzah. Sivos Hashem UK have embarked on a programme to teach others how the unleavened bread is made. Community editor Diana Toman has been speaking to Rabbi Yossi Simon from Sivos Hashem UK to find out more about it. Diana started by asking Rabbi Simon how the mobile bakery process works. Children come in and we start right from the beginning going through the story of Pesach and depending on the children and adults as well Wherever they're up to, we go through the story of Pesach. Then, to make the matzah, we go through the whole process of making matzah, starting from how wheat is cut, because all the flour in the shops, we assume that that is chametz, somehow it got wet and could have risen, so we cannot use any flour from any of the shops. We make our own flour. How do you make your own flour? Because I noticed that there was a little, there's a little bowl there with a scythe next to it. Right, so it takes about six months to grow wheat. So we grow the wheat through the winter. It's ready to harvest in the summer when the weather is dry and sunny in some places of the, in the world. And we harvest the wheat. We then need to thresh it to take out the wheat kernels. Then we winnow it. And again, the children do this with their hands or they blow into the bowl. Can you explain to me what winnowing is? It's such a lovely word. So winnowing is to remove the chaff from the wheat kernels using wind. So the farmer in ancient times would go outside and let the wind blow away the chaff. But in a classroom setting, the children come out and they blow into the bowl and the chaff goes flying all over the room and we're left with the wheat kernels in the bowl. 
And then? Then we take the wheat, we grind it with a millstone. And the children have fun doing that. It's quite difficult because of the pressure of one stone over the other. Once we've ground up the wheat kernels into flour, we then use a sieve. We sift through the flour, so we've got the very fine flour. To make a matzah, we use only flour and water. We do not want the flour to get wet until we're ready to actually make the matzah. Because from when the flour and water come into contact together, we need to have the matzah ready, baked out of the oven within an 18-minute time period. Where does the water come from? The water for the hand-baked shmora matzah we take from a well or a spring. And we draw this water the evening beforehand to make sure it cools down. This idea of 18 minutes is only if you have cold water and cold flour. So therefore, we draw the water sunset time in the evening, leave it overnight to cool down. The next day we can then use this water. And the 18 minutes is crucial. This 18 minutes was established in Talmudic times about 2000 years ago. The rabbis did experiments with wheat flour and they said, if you use cold water and cold flour and bake your matzah in less than 18 minutes, it will not become chametz. In this classroom where we're standing at the moment, there is actually an oven, isn't there? Do you bring that oven with you? Yes, yeah, so we have a pizza oven, a commercial pizza oven, which we carry around with us. And in front of it, there's an eight foot by eight foot brick face. So it should look a little bit like a, a wood oven. We've got to the stage of grinding the flour and presumably then they have to roll it out? Yes, yeah, so before that, I explained that the flour that we grind, we do not use it for a few days because friction generates heat. So the flour that we've just produced is warm from the friction in the millstone. Ironically, the best millstone to use is a water mill because that moves slowly and it generates less heat in the flour. So the flour that's been ground, we leave it for a few days to cool down. The next stage is we have two separate rooms. One we store the flour, one we store the water. And they kept very separate until we're ready to knead it together. Then we pour the flour and water together and then someone needs it. How many of these demonstrations are you doing a week, Rabbi? Because this sounds like a full-time job. So we started before Purim, which is four weeks before Pesach. And then from Purim onwards, every day, either one, two, sometimes three, sometimes four in the day. Could we do it in the evenings as well for youth clubs or adults? So today we're in a school in Stamford Hill. The formal school is actually closed. And this is like a holiday scheme for the children, like a day camp for the children to get them out of their parents' hair just before Pesach. So they actually go home with their own matzah in a little packet? So they go home with their own matzah and a baker's hat printed on it. I made my own matzah. The only thing is, this matzah we make is a chomitz matzah. It's a model matzah bakery, so it's 100% chomitz. So some families find it a little bit challenging. They've just paid to clean their house, and the kids bring home a chomitz matzah. Most families do not have this problem because generally the matzah gets consumed on the way home. I see. It never gets as far as the parents. No, this is a hot, fresh matzah. That's fantastic. How long has this wonderful bakery been actually in existence? When did you start it all? Sivas Hashem have been running these master bakeries for about 20 odd years. Have you? 20 years? 20 years. 
And many of the children that I met initially are now parents themselves and teachers themselves in schools. And a lot of these teachers are inviting me to their schools because they remembered how much they learnt as a child when they were in school. Rabbi Yossi Simon from Tzivos Hashem UK talking to community editor Diana Toman there about their mobile matzah bakery. And in fact, if you'd like to see some images of the mobile bakery, then you'll find those at our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the program so far. And joining Tony Honigberg and me today is journalist and author Jeremy Havadi and chair of the Middle East Strategy Committee for the Bay Area in America, Dr. Lenny Crystal. And the subject today is the one that you've been hearing throughout this program. Ken Livingston has avoided being permanently kicked out of the Labour Party over his comments on Zionism and Hitler. He has instead been issued an additional year suspension from the party. Now, this discussion must not be about Mr Livingston, who is not here to defend himself, but instead we must ask the question, what should Labour do now to reassure their Jewish voters that they still matter to them. Jeremy, let's start with you. Have Labour done enough to gain support from you as a member of the voting public? Absolutely not. And it doesn't matter that I'm sort of partisan aligned with another party. If I were a neutral, let's say, I would not be voting Labour. I would not even consider voting Labour. They haven't taken the problem of anti-Semitism seriously. The Chakrabarti inquiry that was set up was rightly derided as a whitewash. It failed to actually provide any sufficient analysis of the anti-Semitism problem that is plaguing significant parts of the Labour movement. As far as they're concerned, there isn't really an issue of what they call overt anti-Semitism. There are just little incidents here and there. So they, they have absolutely no sense, really, of why it is that most Jewish voters, according to the polls I've seen, would not touch Labour with a barge pole. It's interesting you say this, because I've mentioned this before in this programme, but many years ago... When I was younger, I can remember that there were many Jewish members of parliament who were Labour supporters and none who were members of the Conservative Party until Sir Keith Joseph became a member of parliament. He was the first Jew in the 1960s, I think, who became, maybe it was the 50s, but the 1960s, who became a Conservative MP. And Every Jew that I knew, not me, but uh, most of the Jews that I knew, all, whatever their position was in the world, all seemed to vote Labour. Nowadays, (laughs) it's just the opposite. Do you not find that interesting? Yes, I do find that interesting, but I think there's an explanation for that in a sense. Because the Jewish community in, in the UK, to the best of my understanding, is under some type of threat. And I think from a psychological point of view, when people tend to be under threat, they tend to cohese around their roots and going back to a more conservative position generally. And I think consequently, the Jews in this country who who look around them and they do recognize the anti-Semitism that pervades the society, I think they actually come together and say, we don't want to have anything to do with people that are instrumental 
and actually disseminating this. So I do actually see the reasons as to why this is happening. And I do feel that actually Labour can do very little now to actually win back Jewish voters. And they shouldn't until they actually, in my opinion, expel Mr. Livingston, and I understand that this is perhaps not the final act of the saga. And whether or not an expulsion does anything to change the atmosphere, I'm also not that certain. So it remains to be seen. I, I think I think Labour have completely lost their way. I think they've forgotten also, as you mentioned, that the funding that went into the original Labour Party came from Jews. Jewish MPs were in the Labour Party, as you've already said, and I think Labour has forgotten all about that. And do they need to remember that now? Because Jewish people are now more affluent and and probably vote more towards Conservative than towards Labour anyway. Maybe they don't need to have to worry about it so much these days. There still are a number of Jewish Labour MPs, though, aren't there? Oh, there are, yes. Still, there's still quite a few, but not in great abundance. But then there's a few Conservative MPs as well. There are more, sorry, there are more than a few. Hmm. There are a number of Conservative yeah, Jewish MPs. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. They don't. And we have Labour prime, doesn't outweigh the Conservatives. And we now have a Prime Minister who, on the night that she became Prime Minister, was dining with the Chief Rabbi. Yes. But the thing is, Clive, it was quite natural for British Jews to gravitate towards the Labour Party under the years of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. Those prime ministers and MPs took a sensible position generally in regard to Israel. They took a sensible position certainly in regard to Zionism and and wider issues of Jewish identity. They embraced it. And even though we we might not have agreed with everything they said, the bottom line is they were very sensible and centrist in in their views. Whereas in the last couple of years... The Labour Party has been overtaken by radicals. It's been overtaken by those who are very much more on the hard left and they've been supported by a deeper movement of people on the hard left. Mm. You only need to look at some of the views expressed by supporters and and, and others on that side to see how they latch onto a conspiracist mindset, which, for example, regards even the whole idea of having an anti-Semitism inquiry as a Tory plot as some aberration designed to try and stifle criticism of Israel. They believe that the world is dominated by the Rothschilds. I mean, you see this stuff all the time. The hard left has a, has a deeply anti-Western conspiracist mindset, which is quite happy, actually, with certain expressions of anti-Semitism. And so, naturally, when the mainstream of the party appears to be gravitating in that direction, of course, most British Jews will be appalled yeah, and alienated. But, but the fact is that I can remember back a few years... Tony Benn, who was the hard left in those days, Mm. and Harold Wilson always said about Tony Benn, I've got him in my cabinet so I can have him blowing in instead of blowing out. Mm. But Tony Benn, whom I had the great good fortune of interviewing on one occasion, I happen to know was very pro-Jewish. Uh, so why has the left changed now mm. to this extent? But I think Tony Benn was pro-Jewish, but very, very critical of Israeli politics and Israeli governments at the time. So basically, he dichotomized that and he reflected the hard left view of how they interpreted and saw Zionism, although he was a Zionist. He was a pro-Zionist when he started out his mm. career. But I think he moved with that hard left in terms of really advocating quite a hostile position towards Israel. I think today we find that that hostile position is now prevalent and kind of mainstream in the Corbynista movement and the hard left, which seems to have taken over the, the, the Labour Party. I think therein lies the difference. Times have changed and the swell of anti-Israel, and by the way, helped tremendously by the media. And I think the Labour Party has moved. It may come back to the centre at some point. And unless they get to the heart of that problem, how the party itself needs 
a radical reform from where it is now, they don't get it. It's not just about individuals. It's not bad apples. It's about the whole basket. I'm not defending these people, but is it not perfectly all right to say things that they disagree with about things that happen in Israel, for example? I mean, I have no Israelis who have agreed with some of the things that, that some politicians have said about Israel. But we're not talking here about criticism of Israel. Let's be, let's be fair. No one, no one should suggest in their right mind that criticism of Israeli policy or Netanyahu or settlements or occupation is anti-Semitic. But when you're talking about language that likens Israel to Nazi Germany or to apartheid South Africa, or which says that Israel should be, you know, Israelis should be moved as a population to another part of the world, or which makes diabolically distorted claims about the relationship between Nazis and Zionists, it's a totally different ballpark. Do you I think from an individual point of view, if you're a lifelong member of the Labour Party and you're an activist and advocate for the Labour Party, it takes tremendous amount of courage to face yourself in the mirror and say, look, this is not the party that I've been supporting, and actually to leave the party or to demonstrate in a vociferous way. And collectively, it does take a movement, a groundswell of Jewish Labour supporters and, and the, the Labour Party, uh, you know, the Jewish Labour Party, to come out and not just make fine statements, it's to actually go out and protest and be part and parcel of a movement that tries to do something about changing the atmosphere. I think, to be fair, they have. There, the number of them, I've heard them on the radio, I've heard about them in the newspapers, a lot of, not just Jewish Labour MPs. No, that's true. Labour MPs who might be Christians, Muslims, whatever, who have all been about this particular case at the moment, have all been very critical of the way the Labour Party is behaved. I think do, do you think the Labour Party are now beyond redemption? And is there now room for a new party to be formed from the moderate, let's say, the moderate left and the extremist left? You could say that about any party too. Well, the Labour Party particularly, because of all this, in, this the incidents that have been going on. Well, do you? Um, well, possibly. I think that's, that may be where it needs to be now. It needs to be disbanded and a new party come forward, definitely. Or do you think we would have the same problem? I think probably you would have the same problem. I mean, how do you start doing that? If, you're a, if you are a Labour member of Parliament... You stand up and say, I'm starting a new party? They, they tried. Before, they tried it? with uh, David Owen, I remember, yes. and Shirley Williams. That's right. And see where that got them in the long run. But uh, clearly, it something work, is, it? no, it didn't. And I think that uh, history shows us that that sort of thing is very difficult to achieve. So, what do you do then? I frankly have no idea. I think it's beyond the pale. And I think that politics overall have to play, play themselves out in this country to see where it's headed. I mean, if, if people are going to kick back against Corbyn, it won't be because of the, the Jewish issue or the anti-Semitism. It'll be for larger issues that face the country. The problem this makes, of course, is that we have now haven't got a strong opposition party. If, let's say we go to the vote, there's not a strong opposition party for the Conservative Party. And you, and you need, in government or in, in parliament, you need a good opposition party to fight against, I believe. Well, it's, that's interesting you say that, because the Times this week has had a, a very interesting article in which it talks about the fact that the Conservative Party is not very interested in having an election at the moment for the simple reason that a great number of seats, Conservative seats, are probably going to go to the Liberals who are having a resurgence because these Conservative seats don't like what's happening to the Conservative Party at the moment. Yes. So, I mean, you know, it, it works for both parties, yeah. perhaps.
Perhaps it does, yes. I think, sadly, you know, bigger issues such as Brexit and the consequences of Brexit, etc., will will actually hold the, the sway in terms of the public's perception of where the parties are. And very sadly, I think the anti-Semitism issue is a minor issue in the minds of the general public. Well, it, it, doesn't, it, well, well, it doesn't affect most of them. That's the thing. No, but I think that well, one poll I saw suggested that one third of, of British voters are actually turned off Labour because of anti-Semitism. But you're right. I mean, it's never going to be the main issue at an election. But I think there is a sense of a mood music here. I think I think Labour is seen as a party that you can't trust on so many issues, whether it's the economy or the NHS or any of the other big issues in public policy. There was a poll which suggested that Theresa May was only about four points higher than Corbyn in terms of who would make the best party leader, which you're thinking is worrying, but that's of Labour supporters, a poll of oh, Labour well, supporters. Well, so the, anti- understand, yeah, understand the anti-Semitism thing is really part of the mix. It's a sense that this party, something's gone wrong, badly wrong, it can't be trusted, and therefore they've got to fix things root and branch. And I think it does start with a change in the, in the party leadership. So you think that there will be no... The Labour Party will not be able to deal with anti-Semitism until it has a different leader. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I agree. Well, there we'll have to leave it. It's been a very interesting discussion. Thank you all very much indeed. My thanks to our guests, journalist and author Jeremy Havadi, and chair of the Middle East Strategy Committee for the Bay Area in America, Dr. Lenny Crystal. Now, just ahead of our rabbinic thought for the week, it's time to hear from Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips again. And this time, quite rightly, she has a delicious recipe for Pesach. What have you got for us today, Denise? We're going to do a recipe that is perfect for Satanite, and it's called Oregano and Olive Roast Chicken. The family love roast chicken, and they certainly love olives. It takes about 30 minutes to make, but what I really want to stress is that the best flavour is if you can marinate this even a day or so in advance, and what you're going to marinate this in is juice of two oranges and zest of one, a bunch of fresh oregano, and that's the leaves, just chop the leaves, three cloves of garlic, peeled and roughly chopped, and about four tablespoons of olive oil. So mix all those lovely, lovely ingredients. And the pieces of chicken you're going to use to cook this, it makes it quite, it's pieces of chicken, not a whole chicken. So you can use thighs or you can use breast or cut up a whole chicken yourself, whatever you want. And sufficient for six people. So if you're using it for six, maybe 12 chicken thighs, for example. So what you're going to do is having marinated the chicken in those beautiful flavours, you're now going to make the olive topping. And that is made with 200 grams of mixed green and black olives. And those are pitted ones. You don't want to be bothered with ones with stones. Two garlic cloves. One to two chilies if you like it a little piquant, as we say, or omit it if you don't like spicy food. Zest of an orange and a tablespoon of orange juice. Again, more oregano sprigs, leaves only. A little extra virgin olive oil tablespoon of balsamic vinegar, two teaspoons lemon juice and a teaspoon of honey. And again, mix all those beautiful ingredients together and keep that to one side. So having marinated your chicken, you're now going to roast this chicken for about 45 minutes. And then for the last 20 minutes, you're going to put the olive topping on top and cook that for another 20 minutes. Slice up some oranges and garnish it. And then it's just ready to serve. 
Oh, as ever, that sounds absolutely amazing. Thank you so much to Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips there for that sensational sounding recipe. The full recipe can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find a link to Denise's website, jewishcookery.com. Well, now it is time for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Amanda Golby from New North London, Mazorti Synagogue. Pesach comes in with a bang and out with a whimper. Don't get me wrong, there are those for whom the whole festival is important. However, while the Seder is probably the most popular observance of the Jewish year, far more observe some sort of Seder than Yom Kippur. For very many, Pesach begins and ends with the Seder. Yet according to tradition, it does not end until Shavuot, seven weeks later, when, as it were, we stand to hear the Ten Commandments and renew our commitment to Torah, to Jewish learning. And the link between these is the Omer. Yet if you ask most Jews what the Omer means, they will probably say it's a time when you can't have music, when weddings and other celebrations are not held, when haircuts are avoided, other than on certain days. That's true but there's far more to it than that, and I believe it can speak to all Jews, no matter their level of observance. We start to count the Omer at the second Seder, and then count each night for the succeeding 48 until Shavuot. For our ancestors in ancient times, it represented the harvest, and was undoubtedly a very tense time. If the harvest failed, there would not be enough food. Who would be in the mood for celebration? As Jews became more distanced from agricultural life, we know from the Talmud of the plague at that time among Rabbi Akiva's students that miraculously lifted on Lagba Omer, whether the plague was disease or Roman persecution. Again, who could celebrate? And in some ways it has become even more complicated in our time. At one level we journey from Pesach to Shavuot, from freedom to revelation, the purpose of our freedom. But as well as ancient days, we have Yom HaShoah, the day for remembering the Holocaust. Yom HaZikaron, Israel's Remembrance Day, which leads us into Yom HaTzma'ut, Independence Day. And since the Six-Day War, exactly 50 years ago, Yom Yerushalayim. We have so much scope for using the Omer in new as well as traditional ways. Yes, when I can anticipate Shavuot and study Torah. We can use the time for a social action project, perhaps thinking of the hungry or those who are still enslaved. We can mark the new days and read about them. And there are many calendars to guide us through this time. I'm always over ambitious in what I plan at the outset, but I hope I will be able to do something meaningful over the coming weeks and hope you will too. Hag Sameach. Me personally, I always treat the counting of the Omer as a chance to really remind myself just how lucky I am to be able to turn on music whenever I feel like it. I know, as Rabbi Golby was saying there, that there are many more elements to it. But it's for me, I would say that's the most poignant part of the counting of the Omer. Thank you very much does go to Rabbi Amanda Golby from New North London Mazorti Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Jeremy Newmark, chair of the Jewish Labour Movement, Harry Borden, don't forget his book, Survivor, a portrait of the survivors of the Holocaust, Rabbi Yossi Simon from Sivos Hashem UK. Thanks to our other contributors, including Denise Phillips, and of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producer, 
producers Adam Bradley, Sue Greenberg and Tony Honickberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find a link to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.